last week we ended in chapter 5, verse 7. You'll remember last week Yahweh had taken Israel to court. And he acted as the prosecutor. And he brought a bunch of evidence against Israel. He brought evidence against the priesthood. They had committed ministerial malpractice. They refused to teach the people about God. They refused to teach His law. And they led them into sin. And then if you start feeling bad for the people, He had evidence against them too. They willfully followed. They were intentionally ignorant. They willfully followed the priest into sin. And then he presented evidence against the entire nation, and he called the northern kingdom Ephraim, after its largest tribe. And he presented evidence that the whole kingdom was guilty. And then finally in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, he renders his verdict on the northern kingdom. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Hear this, O priest, give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you. He gets all three groups in there. The king, the people, the priest, all of them. All of you are guilty. All of you deserve the judgment that's coming. Into that section, verse 7, he says, The nation is guilty. There's a judgment coming. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh. In verse 7, now the new moon will devour them and their land. The new moon is a reference to the festivals, the feasts of the Mosaic Law. The new moon festival was a time of renewal. It was a time to renew their relationship with Yahweh. And Yahweh says, you've been abusing these festivals, and now I'm going to use this new moon as a renewal of your judgment. And it's going to be a time where you're not going to have prosperity and crops. You're going to have judgment and your land is going to be devoured. This morning we're picking up in chapter 5, verse 8. And like I said, we're going to be covering 35 verses. So some of these we're going to move pretty quick over. And through Hosea, Yahweh continues to explain that the northern kingdom is engaging in idolatry, is living a sinful lifestyle. And he's going to continue to explain how he's going to deal with that sin. I've entitled this section, Yahweh will expose Israel. Yahweh will expose Israel. Israel had gotten really good at wearing a mask. They had become really good hypocrites. They knew how to follow the law in the sense of the religious aspects of it. They kept all the feasts and the festivals. They did everything the Mosaic Law said they were supposed to do to deal with sin. They did all the sacrifices. They just didn't live it out at all. It was like they go to church on Sunday and that's it. And the rest of their life, they just live in sin. And now Yahweh is going to take the mask off. And he's going to expose them for what they are. He's going to end their little delusion. They were deluded into believing that Yahweh was blessing them. that the, Actually, that Baal was blessing them. That all of their provision was coming because the fertility gods were happy with them. They were deluded into thinking that they were righteous. That they had the favor of the gods. And now the truth is going to be revealed, if it hasn't already through the book. Yahweh's going to expose the truth of their condition. He's going to expose what's going to happen in their future, and he's going to expose what's going on in their hearts. So let's do the first one. First point on your outline. Yahweh exposes Israel's future judgment. Yahweh exposes Israel's future judgment. There are handouts. They should be over there in that corner if you don't have a handout. Let's look at verse uh, 8 of chapter 5. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound an alarm at beth -Avon. Behind you, Benjamin. The horn here is a shofar. You might say a trumpet, an ancient version of a trumpet. 
This had a couple purposes. One, it called men into battle. If you wanted to assemble the army, you would blow the shofar. And two, it warned you of danger. You can see how those two might be connected. There's an army coming, there's danger, assemble the army. Hosea encourages Gibeah, Ramah, and Bethaven to sound the alarm. Gibeah is mentioned in Hosea 9.9, and it's used to describe the sin of Israel. It's also mentioned again in Hosea 10.9. We'll talk about those in a couple of weeks. Those events are not in view here in chapter 5. That's not what they're referring to. He's using these as an illustration of impending danger. Something had apparently happened in all three of these cities that was a major crisis. That, whatever that event was isn't recorded, but Hosea's readers likely would know what this event is. And he's warning them again, there is danger behind you. He even says, behind you, Benjamin. Think of those horror movies where it's always the behind you, right? Benjamin is a tribe. There's danger coming. You don't even see it. You don't even know it's coming. So what is coming their way? Verse 9, Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke among the tribes of Israel. I declare what is sure. The day of rebuke, literally the day of punishment, refers to the day that judgment will fall on the northern kingdom. It says they're going to become desolate, completely destroyed. If you want to see that, you can go over to 1 Kings 17, and it describes the desolation. Israel doesn't see this coming. They're completely oblivious. They're headed for destruction. They don't think so. And in fact, Yahweh says, I declare what is sure. More literally, I will cause you to know what is trustworthy. The judgment is coming. It's as sure as the sun rising. It's as sure as the sun coming up and going down. And you know that because it's Yahweh telling you. You're headed for trouble. Why is the whole nation going to be destroyed? Seems like an obvious question. Verse 10 answers it. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. He points here to the political institutions. You'll see this when we get into chapter 7. He points to the political institutions. And he says the political institutions of Israel are corrupt. They're dishonest. They were the kind of men who moved boundaries. Anybody know what that's a reference to? Moving boundaries? Someone said something. Good, yes. Uh, that's out of Deuteronomy 19.14. You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. Deuteronomy 27 actually pronounces a curse on anyone who moves the boundary. You want to gain a little extra land, you pick up the boundary, just move it over a little bit. And you can steal your neighbor's land. That's the kind of men that were leading Israel. They were dishonest. They were thieves. They had no care, no concern for their neighbor, no love for their neighbor or each other, much less a concern for God. So he finishes that and he says, I will pour out my wrath like water. Uh, Isaiah 8, 5 through 8 is a good cross-reference there. Um, I don't think I need to explain pour out my wrath like water. I think it's pretty straightforward. Judgment's coming. Verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. By oppressed, he means they're politically and socially destroyed. The, the nation is falling apart. To be crushed in judgment means to be mistreated. They've been reduced to servitude. They've been reduced to slaves. 
the end of that verse is a little bit debated when he says uh, he was determined to follow man's command. Who has the ESV? What does the ESV say there at the end of the verse? He was determined to go after filth. Uh, the NET, the New English Translation, because he was determined to pursue worthless idols. And, of course, the NASB, he was determined to follow man's command. Um, the issue here is one word. It's a word that isn't used very often, and people are struggling to understand how they should translate it. The ultimate point of this passage, this little statement here, is that they followed after idols. They followed after false gods. Isaiah 28, 10-13 uh, the same word here is translated as orders or commands. And because they were following after these idols, because they were engaging in this idolatry, searching after you know gods like Baal, verse 12, Therefore I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. Remember we said Hosea is a master literary craftsman? He describes his judgment as a moth. The damage a moth does. Um, does a moth destroy your clothing like instantaneously? It takes the moth a while, doesn't it? But once a moth starts eating away at your clothing, is it easy to repair? It goes too long and the clothing is just ruined. You just have to throw it out. This is irreversible damage. It's damage that happens and you don't even realize it's happening. And the same thing with the idea of rottenness. It's to be putrefied. It's the damage done by worms. Kind of a graphic way to describe God's judgment. In both illustrations, the idea here is that the judgment is irreversible. It can't be undone. There's nothing they can do to stop this. They can't make their situation better. There's no human remedies. There's no solution here. This is being done by Yahweh, and there's nothing you're going to do to stop it. That doesn't mean they're not going to try. They're going to look for ways to stop it. What do you think they're going to do? You think they're going to turn to Yahweh? Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the king Jerob, but he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. This judgment was supposed to get them to come back to Yahweh. This was supposed to be a discipline that caused them to repent and turn from their sins and caused them to trust in Yahweh again. And instead, both nations, the north and the south, said, oh, things are getting tough. We have political problems. Let's go over to these other nations and get help from them. And the northern kingdom, Ephraim, goes to Assyria and tries to build a political alliance with Assyria. That's actually kind of funny, given that Assyria was the nation that God used to destroy them. He says, King Jerob. Jerob literally means the great one. There's no reference in history to King Jerob. Or any king in general. But this is just a general reference to the king, whoever that king will be. The great king of Assyria. The point here is, every attempt that they've make to try to fix their problems, every solution they try to find to overcome the judgment, all of them will fail. They can run to Assyria if they want to. It's not going to work. This wound was inflicted by Yahweh. And if they want to get it resolved, if they want it to be healed, they can't go to Assyria. Assyria can't fix it. But Yahweh's judgment isn't going to end there, it's not going to end with a moth or a little wound. 
it's going to end climactically. Um, verse 14. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away, and there will be none to deliver. Yahweh returns back to his graphic language, and he pictures himself as a lion. You guys have all watched the Discovery Channel. The lion runs, grabs the deer or whatever he's going to eat, and he says, I'm going to tear to pieces. And then I'm going to drag it off. Kind of graphic, isn't it? This is not the moth eating away anymore, is it? And the illustration really doesn't require me to explain anymore. It's pretty obvious. This is going to be a very painful, very gruesome judgment. What animal in the animal world is going to stop the lion from eating his meal? Or take it away from the lion? Nothing. No one. In the same way, no one's going to stop Yahweh. No one's going to stop or reverse his decision. This decision is final. Their judgment is coming. Yahweh exposes Israel's future judgment. And he does it because this judgment has a purpose. And the purpose was to bring about repentance. The purpose was to bring about change. didn't work, though. And if you want to know if it worked, you can now go to the second point. Yahweh exposes Israel's future repentance. I actually should have changed that. It should be ideal repentance, not future. Ideal. My apologies. Yahweh exposes Israel's ideal repentance. That starts in verse 15. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. That was the point of the judgment. The point of the judgment was to bring about repentance. And Yahweh says, I'm going to judge them, and then I'm going to remove myself from Israel. I'm going to withdraw my hand from the nation of Israel. They're on their own now that they're in exile. And he's going to do that. The key word in that phrase is until. Until they acknowledge their guilt. Until they confess their sin. Until they come back to me and acknowledge what they've been doing until they're honest about their culpability and their violation of the covenant. In their affliction, in the judgment Yahweh will bring upon them, then they will repent. What does that repentance look like? What will it sound like? Chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. These are the words that they should use in repentance. It's the kind of response that they should have given before the fall of Israel. He describes, they describe the judgment of Yahweh here as being torn, the same terminology that was used in chapter 5. The wound here is the wound that they could not repair going to Assyria. And they say, well, when we return back to Yahweh, when we go to Yahweh, if we go to Him, not only will He heal us, verse 2, He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. There's all sorts of commentaries that are talking about two days and three days and trying to find the significance of the two days or the three days. And they're trying to point to, well, you know, Jesus was in the grave for three days, and then he was raised. And Two days or three days, there's a whole bunch of theories on it. I think the easiest way to understand that is this is a period of time. 
in the future, they will be revived. They'll be brought back to life. This is an expression of confident hope. If we go back to Yahweh, if we go back to Him, He will revive us. How is this going to be fulfilled? Anybody know? Anyone have a guess on how this will be fulfilled? How is this going to be fulfilled? Israel says, if we go back to Yahweh, Yahweh will revive us. How is that going to be fulfilled? Okay. Millennial Kingdom, the Messiah. This is a messianic hope. The Messiah is going to come back. He's going to save us. He's going to revive us. And there we will have fellowship with him. We will dwell as a nation with our true king. The king that has been promised to us for a long time. Notice that it says they will be living with him. In communion, fellowship with Yahweh. No more division, no more separation. Notice also there's no mention here of wine, grain, prosperity. Their heart's desire is Yahweh himself. This is what they should have been doing. Verse 3, so let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. This is the singular desire that they should have. To know God. Let us know. To press on to know the Lord. Up to this point, the only desire they've expressed is, how can we get wealth and prosperity and new grain? How can we make the fertility gods happy with us? But Yahweh promised that they would receive blessing when they knew Him. When they sought for Him with all of their heart. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him if you search for Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. If you seek after Yahweh, not only will you find Him, but you'll receive all the blessings that He promised you. And then Hosea gives them two illustrations. He says, like the dawn. The Messiah's coming. This restoration is as sure as the sun coming up in the morning. It's guaranteed. His coming will be like the spring rain watering the earth. He's going to come in kindness. He's going to come with blessing. This is what Israel should have done. This was the ideal response to the judgment. If they would have done this back in chapter 1, we wouldn't have the book of Hosea. But this is not how Israel responded. This is not what they did. They didn't turn back to Yahweh. This is our third point here. Yahweh exposes Israel's corrupt heart. And this is the longest section out of it. And I've, I've gone through this and I've just picked out three base, excuse me, basic sin issues, sin problems that these address. And we're just going to pick them up one at a time. The first one, Israel is fickle. Israel is fickle. They keep going back and forth. You, you might say they're double-minded. They're disloyal. Verse 4, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. This is God asking questions, but as we all know, God doesn't ask questions because he needs information. These are more of an anthropomorphism. This is God putting himself on our level. 
God's expressing in human terms his displeasure with Israel. My parents used to do this when I was a kid. I would do something really foolish. My parents would throw their arms up and say, what are we going to do with this kid? What am I going to do with you? It's kind of what God is doing here. What am I going to do with these people? Remember Moses in the wilderness? He said the same thing. That's the idea. All of his efforts at restoring Israel, all of his efforts at preventing judgment to this point have failed. They refuse to listen to any of them. They still have no genuine love or commitment to Yahweh or to the covenant or to each other. Notice he says, your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. This is their fickleness. Your loyalty, your loving kindness, your faithful love. They keep going back and forth. One day they'll say, well, we're going to commit ourselves to Yahweh. By the next morning, it's over, and they're back to Baal. Any loyalty, any love that they have for Yahweh today is gone in the morning. It's here today, gone tomorrow. They can't seem to make up their mind. It's as passing and as temporary as the morning dew. You wake up in the morning, the grass is all wet. Later that morning, the grass is completely dry. That's their love for Yahweh. It's here and then it's gone. And their fickleness brings about a resolute response from Yahweh. He doesn't like this. New Testament says, don't be double-minded. Joshua told Israel, make up your mind. Who are you going to serve? Elijah told him the same thing. Verse 5, Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. When he says, hewn them in pieces by the prophets, he's not saying that the prophets went out and executed a whole bunch of people. It's, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. God has spoken through his prophets, and it's cut the people in two. It's cut right down into their heart. Their depictions of the nation of Israel are accurate, they're piercing, they're true. And that final little phrase there differs in translation. The NSB says, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. ESV says, and my judgment goes forth as light. Um, the difference here is in manuscripts, and which manuscript do you prefer? This is a textual variant. The idea here, though, is the same regardless of which manuscript you choose. God's judgment on the nation of Israel is as sure as light going out. That's the idea. It just expresses the confidence that God's judgment will come. Yahweh is going to bring judgment on the nation of Israel. Just as sure as what we saw in the beginning of chapter 6, the Messiah is coming, it's that certain. So regardless of what translation you have. Okay, I've been going for a minute. Are there any questions so far? Comments? Okay. Um, NASB says, uh, judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. And then... ESV says, and my judgment goes forth as light. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the Hebrew leaves the judgments as the subject. The Greek actually changes it um, and puts it as my judgments. Hebrew doesn't have the my aspect of it. So in, in, the he, in the Greek, it's God speaking, and it says my judgments will go out, and God is the subject. In the Hebrew, it just says, and the judgments on you are like light that goes forth. And so there the judgments are the subject. That's the biggest difference.
either translation you take, I, I think the, the conclusion is going to be the same. It, it expresses a confidence that the judgment's going to happen. Any other comments, questions? Let's go to verse 6. Speaking of... Uh, verse 6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I think we've seen this before. Huh? Somewhere in Matthew, First Samuel. Um, I, Israel's being a bunch of hypocrites. They go and they practice and they participate in all the sacrifices and all the formal religion. But the rest of the week, they, they live completely immoral lives. And even in doing the sacrifices, they do the sacrifices not so they can be pleasing to Yahweh, they do the sacrifices so they can be pleasing to Baal. So even in doing the sacrifices, they're being hypocrites. And Yahweh said, look, it's just better to be faithful to the covenant to live a moral life, to, to live in a way that I've called you to live, rather than thinking you can just go and participate in religion and somehow erase all of your sin. It'd be, re it'd be better for you to drop religion altogether than to continue playing church. Israel wasn't loyal, she was fickle. She wasn't faithful to the covenant. Verse 7, But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. How many of you have heard this verse before? Anybody? This is a hugely debated verse. Especially that first one. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. And there are three basic views, and I want to take a minute to talk about these and address them because you'll hear people use this as a reference for covenant theology. Um, amillennialism, covenant theology. Covenant theology says that there are two basic covenants. There was a covenant made with Adam, and Adam broke the covenant. That's the covenant of works, and there's a covenant of mercy or grace. That's the new covenant. And this is one of the verses that they use to justify that theology. The first view here is Adam here refers to the man Adam in Genesis 2 and 3. So when you read verse 7, but like Adam there, they view that as being the actual person Adam. This is where they get their justification for saying the person of Adam had a covenant. Now, mind you, in Genesis 1 through 3, there's no mention of a covenant. This is the only verse that they can point to to justify a covenant. The word covenant is not used in Genesis 2 and 3 when discussing in uh, Adam. So they have to go here, say this is talking about Adam, and then superimpose that back on Genesis 2 and 3. If Genesis 2 and 3 are describing a covenant, it is the only time in Scripture that God made a covenant with someone and he didn't call it a covenant. One person wrote, one commentator said, covenant theologians need such a reference in order to complete their system. Unless they are willing to posit the only covenant in the Bible that is never called a covenant. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he called it a covenant. He made a covenant with Noah, he called it a covenant. He made a covenant with David, it's called a covenant. He made the new covenant, it's called a covenant. And yet they claim there's a covenant with Adam, and yet there is no mention of it anywhere. This verse should not be used to superimpose that theology back into Genesis 2 and 3. Just like in the New Testament where we find the reference to the baptism for the dead, you don't take a vague reference like that and use it to build theology and then superimpose that onto another verse. 
or, in, or the rest of the Bible. So I think we can just do away with that one. The next two are a little bit closer. One says Adam here refers to all men. It's the Hebrew word Adam. Adam could mean man, and it's used to refer to all men in general, or it could be used to refer to a single man. In that sense, if you take this as being all men, this is saying that Israel behaved like all men. They, <clears throat> excuse me, they behaved like the rest of mankind. And this is especially condemning for Israel because Israel was not like the rest of mankind. Israel received the oracles of God. Israel had a relationship with Yahweh. They had been redeemed and chosen by Yahweh. They had been given revelation. And yet here they are behaving like everybody else. So that would be more condemning to them. The third view, Adam here refers to a city named Adam. Adam refers to a city named Adam. Uh, the New English Translation. Anybody carrying an NET? The New Living Translation translates it, At Adam they broke the covenant. The NASB, But like Adam, they broke the covenant. Why is there a difference here in the two translations? I'm showing you this for a reason. Ka-adam. Adam is the word Adam. That little thing on the front there is a preposition. The NASB translates that, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. That comes from the Masoretic text. Okay? There, that preposition is functioning as a simile, and it's making a comparison between Israel and Adam, regardless of who you say Adam is. The NET translates it this way. At Adam, they broke the covenant. That is assuming that that preposition is locative. Locative is a really fancy way to say it's referring to a location. Okay, it's local. The problem here is if you take the NET's translation, you have to change that preposition. Because the preposition there, the preposition calf, does not have a locative use. It cannot be used locally. It cannot be used to describe a location. Don't take my word for it. Arnold and Choi, these are Hebrew grammars. Unlike other prepositions, calf has no spatial use. You on Morocco, unlike other prepositions listed above, it is not a local preposition. To translate that preposition as at is to change the text. It's changing the text to this, a preposition baith. That's the only way you can translate Hosea 6-7 as at Adam. Describing a city. Have I lost anybody yet? Everybody with me? Okay. Yes. Right. Yeah. He was saying he... he he, he thinks Adam here refers to man. Um, the NET here believes that this is a textual variant, that a, a, a scribe somewhere wrote this incorrectly. And so they assume that that calf that you find in the Hebrew text, that the very first one up top, that's not actually there. It's actually the second one, which is why they translate it the way they do. 
they assume there's a problem with the Masoretic text, and they assume there's a textual variant, and they amend the text to justify the change. Because they assume, notice the similarity between the two at the top and the bottom? They assume that a, a, a scribe somewhere just wrote the wrong letter. Uh, you have a reference here to Adam, a city, Joshua 3.16. The waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethim. Interestingly enough here, when it says at Adam, it uses the bath. It does not use the same construction from Hosea 6, verse 7. Okay, now that I've confused most of you. Everyone following me? Everyone get what I'm saying here? Okay. So those are the three options. You, you can agree, disagree. I, I lean more towards the second one. If you want to hold to the third one, that's fine. I think if you follow the Masoretic text and you follow the Hebrew text, it's hard to get there. Because even when I looked up the supposed textual variant, they just said it's probably not that. But they didn't give any reference to where it's listed any differently. All right, that's a whole lot. Yeah. 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 So the the this other view talks about at Adam speaking of a city that the city. There was a transgression of the covenant at that city called Adam, and Israel sinned in the like manner. Um, another problem here. There's no reference to some big violation occurring at the city of Adam. No mention of any specific acts of covenant breaking there. There are other places that would be better examples. If you wanted to use an example to prove covenant breaking, there's other places that you could go. There's other things that you could present. And the benefit of that is you wouldn't have to change the Masoretic text to get there. Now, someone could convince me that I'm wrong here. I'm still open to the idea that there's a, a textual variant here, but I just don't see a lot of evidence for it yet. So I'm going to choose to stick with the Masoretic. My answer is number two. You can disagree if you would like. Okay. All right, we need to keep moving because we are definitely going to run out of time. All right. Uh, verse 8, Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. Gilead is a reference to the territory east of the Jordan River. In this sense, it describes an entire region. Uh, they're tracked with bloody footprints. You remember in chapter 4, we looked at, their, they were said to be murderous, blood touching blood. The blood from this murder touches the blood from that murder. Murder would be a violation of the covenant. It would be a violation of covenant loyalty. Verse 9, and as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. Shechem at one time was the capital of the northern kingdom. This isn't necessarily saying that all the priests were engaged in murder. Um, it likely refers to them being responsible for leading the people into sin, and in that sense, costing them their soul. And that's evidence in the very next verse, verse 10. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Yahweh looks at their harlotry and he calls it, I have seen terrible things. Horrible things. Their, their idolatry has defiled them. They have become ceremonially unclean. They're no longer fit to have a relationship with Yahweh, to be in communion with Him. Verse 11, also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. Judah wasn't Hosea's primary audience. He was primarily writing to the northern kingdom. Judah's the southern kingdom. But Judah never seems to be really far from Hosea's mind. And he brings Judah up. And like Israel, Judah was disloyal. They also were fickle and they didn't stick to the covenant. 
He says there is an appointed time in the future when both the northern and the southern kingdoms will receive full restoration to their relationship with Yahweh. This is like a little glimmer of grace in the midst of a judgment passage. Uh, this brings us to their second little sub-point. Israel is intentionally blind. They're fickle. They're not loyal. They're also intentionally blind. Verse 1 of chapter 7. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in, bandits raid outside. In this verse, he's not promising restoration. He promised restoration in the previous verse. He's not even promising to heal. Think of it this way. Have you ever gone to the doctor? You go to the doctor for sniffles? And you say, Doc, I've got a runny nose. I've got the sniffles. Give me something to stop it. And he says, well, let me do a couple tests. And then he comes back, oh, by the way, um, you don't just have the sniffles. You also have high blood pressure and, you know, your left eye needs work. I'm just making this up as I go. <laughs> he said, I'm picking on him. No. The point is, Yahweh, he says, when I go to heal them, if, if I were a doctor and I'm going to heal Israel, I go there and as soon as I look at this one little wound, I find all these other problems. I find all this other sin. These aren't problems Yahweh didn't know about. These are problems Israel's intentionally ignoring. I know I have these problems, I just don't want to deal with them. These are moral problems. These are sin problems. And Yahweh is going to expose and uncover it for them. He calls it the iniquity of Ephraim. That would be the northern kingdom. And the evil deeds of Samaria. That's the capital of the northern kingdom. What are some of these iniquities and evil deeds? He lists them. They deal falsely. They're dishonest. They're thieves. They have bandits running loose. Uh, this should remind you of Hosea 4, verse 2. They're swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Verse 2. And they do not consider their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. Literally, they do not say to their hearts. They never really think about it. They never really consider it. They never look in the mirror and consider. He says that I remember all their wickedness. Somehow, these people thought that they can run headlong into sin, that they can run and chase after Baal and all these false gods, and Yahweh's just going to forget about it. And he's not going to care. Somehow their deeds wouldn't be associated with them. That Yahweh wouldn't realize it was Israel who did this. That their sin wasn't before his face. Kind of like the little graphic of the monkey. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. They kind of thought of God that way. He just wasn't going to pay attention to it. Intentionally deceived. Intentionally blind. Just pretending like this isn't a problem. And now he's going to give them some examples. And he focuses again on the political leaders of Israel. In verses 3 through 7, he talks about kings, princes, and judges. And he mentions them six times in those verses. It's all about the leadership now. Look at verse 3. With their wickedness they make the king glad and the princes with their lies. The king should be the one leading them away from sin. And yet their sin makes him happy. It brings him joy. It brings him joy because he's out there practicing the same sin. The princes, those who are about to be king, they're dishonest, they're deceptive, they're liars. 
this these verses here seem to have some political intrigue. If you'll remember back to week one, we talked about the northern kingdom had king after king after king after king. Why did they go through so many kings? Because the prince plotted to murder the sitting king. And then when he got in power, the guy following him murdered him, and they went through six kings. They were all assassinated. And their moral character is summed up in verse 4. They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from kneading of the dough until it is leavened. The metaphors here is of an oven, an ancient oven, which be like a fire pit. And you're supposed to light the fire and then stir it to make sure it's nice and even for cooking. This is a fire that's just left burning. And the baker just kind of walks away from it. And the fire here describes their sinful desires, their adultery. Just continually burning. Verse 5, on that day, on the day of our king, the princess became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers. We have no reference to what the day that is being referred to here. Whatever that day was, it was the day where the king apparently was having a party and got drunk. And they were engaged in partying and drinking this. He says, stretch out his hand with the scoffers. Scoffers here is the term rebels. This is that political intrigue that we had mentioned. One king pulling down another, or at least plotting to do so, while the sitting guy is drunk. Verse 6, for their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger smolders all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. He goes back to the oven metaphor. The fire is their burning desire for sin. And he says these desires they have, they smolder all night. And in the morning it burns like a flaming fire. Have you ever had a fire that's just kind of sitting there, it's nice and quiet, and then you poke it and it flares up? You know what I'm talking about? That's what he's describing here. They have these desires, these latent desires that are just burning, and they're easily inflamed. This is that political turmoil. Prince killing the king, followed by another wannabe king killing that guy. Verse 7, all of them are... Um, I just read that. No, verse 7. All of them are like a hot oven... And they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Same idea here. One king setting, uh, killing another. All their kings have fallen. They've all died. The shocking statement in that verse is at the end of it. In the midst of assassinations, political turmoil, the rampant sin... He says, none of them calls on me. Any of you praying for our nation these days? None of them call on me. None of them see their need for repentance. None of them see their need for Yahweh. None of them are concerned about the coming judgment. Intentional, willfully blind. Could care less. He's shown that they're fickle. He's shown that they're blind. And now he's going to show that Israel is arrogant. Verse 8, Ephraim mixes himself with nations. Ephraim has been become a cake, not turned. Ephraim refers to the northern kingdom. He says they've been mixing with other nations. We saw in chapter 5, he goes. they go to Assyria for help. They should have turned to Yahweh. Isaiah 31, 1 through 3, actually pronounces judgment and warns people, don't flee to the other nations, don't run from God. He says, Ephraim has become a cake not turned. This took a little while to figure out what he's talking about here. If you make pancakes and you make them really thick, and you pour the pancake into the pan, and you let it cook, but you don't turn it over, it only cooks like half of the pancake. And then you take that pancake out and put it on someone's plate to serve it. Anybody want to eat that pancake? 
most of us would find that to be disgusting and why would you want to do that? It's unpalatable. That's Ephraim. Unpalatable. Yahweh turns up his nose at him and says, you guys are disgusting. Verse 11, so Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. In their pride and their arrogance, they refuse to go to Yahweh. They refuse to acknowledge their sin. And he says they've become like a silly dove. You remember uh, Noah on the ark? He released a bird. Anybody know what bird he released? A dove. He knows how to find his way home. They've become a senseless dove. They've become a dove that can't do what a dove is supposed to do. They can't find their way home. They're mad. They're crazy. Verse 12, when they go, I will spread out my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. He continues the bird idea, and he's going to bait them with Assyria. He's going to entice them to go to Assyria, and when they do, he's going to entrap them and bring judgment upon them. That's the idea of the net. Verse 13, woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs. They have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Even here, you see some of God's grace shining through, and he's still saying, I would redeem them if they would just repent. And now they don't want to. The last two lines that he says, now I, that's emphatic, I would redeem them, but they speak lies. And he takes it personally. Verse 14, I'm going quicker now because of time. And they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds for the sake of grain and new wine. They assemble themselves. They turn away from me. Notice the problem here isn't the absence of crying. They are crying. They're just crying for the wrong thing. They're not crying because they're losing their relationship with Yahweh. They're crying because they're not getting the grain and the new wine and all the blessings that they thought they were getting from Baal. They're doing it, final phrase, for the sake of grain and new wine and assemble themselves. They turn away from me. This is another textual variant. If you have the ESV, you'll see it says they gash themselves. Um... Basically, for the sake of time, that's the NASB, the word it uses, that they translate as a symbol. That's the word the ESV uses. You guys see the similarity? That's the textual variant. The top one is what the NASB translates with. The bottom one is what the ESV uses. And the difference here is just right there. Some poor scribe was writing late at night and didn't drink enough coffee, and he mis mistakenly put a doloth or a rash instead of a doloth and changed the letter. But those two letters, you see how similar they are? Really easy to make that mistake. I think the ESV here has it right. I think it should be gash. The idea here is they're in pagan cultic worship, and part of that worship is cutting themselves. Cross-reference is 1 Kings 18, verse 28. They actually describe them cutting themselves in this false worship. Verse 15, although I trained and strengthened their arms, they devise evil against me. God's the one who's been providing for them, caring for them, and yet they repay him in hatred. Verse 16, they turn, but not upward. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword. Because of the insolence of their tongue, this will be their derision in the land of Egypt. They turn, but not upward. They repent. They turn, but they never turn to Yahweh. They'll turn in every direction but up. They'll go to anybody but Yahweh. And then he compares them to a deceitful bow. Think of a bow and arrow. Uh, this is a bow that is slack. The cord is really loose. It's a useless bow. It doesn't work. It can't hit a target. 
all their political maneuvering will fail. They're going to go into battle, and they're going to be wiped out. The nation that they had been courting, Assyria, is going to be the nation that wipes them out. And it says this will be their derision in Egypt. They're going to become the laughing stock of the world. They're going to be humiliated. All right, I am over time. If you have questions, please see me afterwards. I'll be happy to answer your questions. And like I said, today is the last time we're doing 35 verses in this class. But it had to be done today. I'm sorry. But let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you are merciful and gracious. Um, we just ask that you would help us to see our own hearts, to see our own sin, and not turn to other things or other people in the world, but turn to you. And we just ask that uh, our worship this morning would be pleasing to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.